These are the oldest stories, online at oldeststories.net. This final chapter of the Epic of Gilgamesh is the most philosophical part of the work, and also the most historically interesting, having sparked a minor theological crisis after the discovery of the clay tablets in 1870 by Victorian-era archaeologists. Today's story is not original. In fact, we can see just how widespread it was by considering how many different names the main character has. We've been using the most common name, Utnapishtim, the Akkadian-era name, but in other versions of the tale, he's been called Atrahasis, Ziadsura, Deucalion, and Noah. Remember how in the first part of the Gilgamesh story, the tale begins with him walking exhausted back into Uruk, having gained the wisdom of the world. This is where that happens. We have seen him exhaust himself on the journey to the far island where Utnapishtim lives. Now it is time for him and us to finally learn the secrets of this mysterious hermit. Following the death of his beloved friend Enkidu, Gilgamesh had wandered the world in grief and in fear of death. Then he had resolved to find a way to cheat death and set out across the earth, driven on by mortal terror. After crossing the tunnel under the earth where the sun goes at night, and passing the Garden of Eden and the Ocean of Death, he has finally come to the shores of Utnapishtim's island, described variously as being the easternmost edge of the world, or the great southern continent, or the source of all rivers, anywhere distant and hard to reach, basically. He'd asked Utnapishtim for immortality, and the old man had basically told him no at the end of our last episode, which Gilgamesh did not appreciate. Leaning on the antediluvian immortal, he finally convinced him to share his story. And so Gilgamesh sat, along with the ferryman who had accompanied him, and took a snack and a beer, while hearing the deep past of human history. Utnapishtim said, In the old days I was king of the great city Shurupak, and much of what was ancient was known to us then, all the way back to the founding of the world, since we were closer to that ancient time and the gods visited the world more frequently. We knew of the Enuma Elish, the tale of the world's creation that should definitely feature in any respectable podcast of ancient tales. But we also knew about things after the main events of the world's creation had taken place. And our story really begins there. The world had formed, but all the details still needed to be filled in. And so the lesser gods were press-ganged into work crews, digging the great Tigris and Euphrates rivers, and constructing all the mountains and the marshes, the greater gods lorded over the lesser and, and cracked the whip hard as they slaved away at the ceaseless drudgery for countless years, crafting the earth. And so one day, the lesser gods were deep in a ravine, carving out a mountain pass, when they realized they were out of sight of their overseer Enlil, god of wind, and they began to mutter among themselves, Is it fair or right that we should have to slave away in labor gangs to do all this construction? Let's ask our overseer Enlil to cut us a break. But others among the lesser gods knew that Enlil did not care in the slightest about their suffering and would not listen. So they all agreed. They lit the construction site on fire, burning all the tools, and they took that fire as their weapon and surrounded Enlil's house. Enlil woke up to find himself besieged, but as a greater god, he was able to hold off the attackers, and they settled into a stalemate. Enlil sent off a messenger to the great gods, who in turn sent a messenger to the rebels. 
That messenger reiterated to the rebels the authority of the senior gods, demanding to know who had instigated this rebellion, for he would be carted off to face the highest judgment. And in the world's first Spartacus moment, the lesser gods all announced that they had each individually declared war against their slavery. They said that the excessive drudgery was killing them, the forced labor was just too heavy, and their misery was more than they could handle. And so they had rebelled against their overseer, Enlil. And surprisingly, their plight fell on sympathetic ears, the highest gods taking pity on the lesser. They acknowledged that they had placed too high a burden on the lesser gods, and so thought of a solution. They decided that they would create a race of basically slave laborers to take all the drudgery and bear the yoke of labor. Gods fashioned this useless throwaway race from clay, then dunked it in the blood of the god Al-Ilu, who had first proposed the idea to create this new race. Then all the gods spat on the little clay figures. And when they released these men of clay, they called the new race humanity and gave them all the burdens of the world, while the gods were free to frolic around and do god things all day. Goodness, thanks gods. And so years and generations passed, where men worked and sacrificed to the gods, and the natural order was all well in hand. But the gods did not pay much attention to the humans, and they began to reproduce freely, eventually becoming like a swarm of locusts on the land. And the gods were not much interested in policing morality at this time, so the horde of humanity became twisted to evil, and they played loud music at night and would just scream loudly for fun when you're trying to sleep, and generally they became a miserable nuisance for their upstairs neighbors, especially Enlil, who was trying to sleep but simply couldn't. And so Enlil went to An, Lord of the Gods, and conspired in secret to rid the world of these nuisances, and when An agreed, they entered into a secret conspiracy. Gradually, they brought more of the greater gods into the conspiracy, but were very careful. Everyone had to be sworn to secrecy, otherwise the lesser gods would rise up in rebellion again. Last of all, they brought Ea, god of wisdom, who was sworn to secrecy when he realized that there was already a solid majority in favor of the flood, even though he personally was opposed to it. And so, having been sworn to tell no man about the upcoming flood, but crafty and opposed to the death of all humanity, Ea came to my palace, for in those days I, Utnapishtim, was king of Shropak. I even feature in the historically-based Sumerian kings list, so there is reasonable documentary evidence that I was a real person and no mere mythic figure. Anyway, Ea came down to my place, but was sworn not to tell me what was going on. So instead he came into my room one night and began to inform the fence on my balcony that a flood was coming, a great flood to exterminate all life in the world, and that it was critical that someone, maybe even the king of Shuropak, construct a massive boat. He said indirectly that I should abandon all worldly riches and tear down my house and use it to construct an ark. And so I cried out, but Ea, god of wisdom! What should I tell the people who see me building this ark? And God was silent until I realized that he was sworn to secrecy. So instead I cried out, oh, reed fence on my balcony. What should I tell the people of the city who see me building this ark? 
And the god told the fence post that I should claim to have angered the god Enlil and therefore could no longer safely live on land. And so I spent all my wealth to hire all the craftsmen of Shurapak. They built for me a boat that was 60 meters tall and large enough to fit seven acres among the seven decks. It was a ship that will not be equaled until far in the future with steel ship construction. Gilgamesh interrupted at this point to ask what a steel ship was, and Utnapishtim told him not to worry about it. It was a secret of the gods that man was not yet ready for. He then continued his tale. The construction was expensive, obviously, but every day I felt for my workers and slaughtered bull and sheep and held nightly feasts for them. Once it was finished, we loaded it up with as much seed and animals as it could carry, and the chief architect, I gave him all of the things in my house as I left as a reward, and I invited the entire town on board for a massive feast. People celebrated to see the town's work finished and believed themselves to be celebrating my great send-off. Bound by silence, I had to slip out into the cold night air and nearly vomited from the guilt I felt. But I kept the god's secret, and the next day the ark was released into the river with everything I was able to save, and just then Adad the storm was blown in by Enlil, god of wind, and the world began to flood. Heralds of doom swept up from the dark horizon, following Adad the storm. There was Shulat, god of despoilment, and Hanish, god of destruction. Nurgle, god of plague, and Ninurta, god of war, all swept before the waters to clean the earth. Those among the gods who were not harbingers of doom took up torches to scorch the land. And finally, after a full day of destructive winds, the flood properly began, overwhelming the people of the world. Even the gods became frightened at the might of that storm, fleeing to the highest heaven and whimpering in Anne's high palace. And there in the high palace, the great gods all came to regret the horrific destruction that they had brought upon the world. Aruru, goddess of birth, wept for all the dead children and was genuinely morally distraught at having taken part in this slaughter. The rest of the gods realized in horror that it was humanity that had been offering up the sacrifices that fed them, now they were hungry and thirsty, and they had made a terrible error. And so, after seven days and seven nights, they stopped the storm and allowed the floodwaters to recede. And a bunch of times I would release a bird, only to have the bird come back to me, because the whole world was covered in water and it had nowhere to land. But after a whole lot of times doing that, I don't need to repeat this passage over and over again, because that would be really boring and redundant. Who would carve into a clay tablet that they released a bird this many times? Obviously, I, Utnapishtim, would carve that in the clay tablet. Anyway, eventually, a raven left and never came back. And so instead of just assuming that it had starved and died, I uh, assumed that the floodwaters were receding. And sure enough, Sure enough, they were, so I prayed to the gods and re-established life as best I could with my family. But as things were getting set up, God of Wind Enlil was flying around the planet to admire the newly scrubbed clean earth when he flew over me in my ark, and he demanded to know why I had survived when he had gone through all the trouble to murder every human. 
Enlil was clearly not one of the ones frightened in high heaven and regretting his actions. Ninurta, god of war, also an unrepentant, realized that it must have been Ea, for only the god of wisdom would be so clever. Yes, the god of wisdom, very clever. And as his name was spoken, Ea appeared and began to castigate them as fools. It is no good, the god of wisdom said, to punish the innocent along with the guilty. And you wonder why he couldn't have said this before the flood, but so it goes. He continued, he said, send a lion to devour sinners, or a wolf to rip them apart, or a famine if it's a large number of sinners, or a whole plague to wipe out a whole region of sin, but not an indiscriminate flood that catches good and evil alike. Think on this, Enlil, and decide on Utnapishtim's fate now. And Enlil, god of wind, knelt down to my level and looked into my eyes and pondered. And I stood in the greatest terror I have ever felt, his power and hostility radiating from his body. And finally he stood and he announced that he had vowed to cleanse all mortals from the face of the earth, but also that he saw the wisdom and justice in the mercy being demanded by Ea. And so he satisfied both conditions by turning me and my wife into immortals and setting us here on this distant island. But the problems still weren't solved. The great gods were hungry. The lesser gods did not wish to labor. And they all feared that the noise and wickedness of humanity would overwhelm the earth again. And so they used my seed to rebuild humanity. But this time they gave them laws and controlled the breeding to prevent us from being a nuisance to heaven. The gods decreed that every third child should perish in infancy and that the last part of a woman's life would be spent infertile. They demanded that high priestesses, presumably except for Ishtars, be celibate. And in this way, humanity does not again overwhelm the gods. Utnapishtim concluded his tale by reiterating to Gilgamesh that it was only through divine intervention that he had received his immortality, and that if the gods are not offering it to him, then there is no way for him to obtain it for himself. The old king of Shurapak asked the young king of Uruk if he was truly worthy of the gods. Gilgamesh asked what could grab the gods' attention, and Utnapishtim said, well... If you really want to try, start out by staying awake for six days and seven nights. Go a whole week without sleeping. Now, I can barely go a 12-hour workday without a nap, but semi-divine kings are made of stronger stuff than podcasters. But as soon as Gilgamesh sat to begin his trial, the gods sent a mist of sleep, and for six days and seven nights, he slept off the fatigue of his long trip to Utnapishtim's island, the exhausting journey that was the subject of the previous episode. And since they knew Gilgamesh was a proud man, they knew he would deny that he'd ever slept at all. So Utnapishtim directed his wife to bake a loaf of bread every morning he slept and put it out in front of him. And when the week was up, Utnapishtim touched Gilgamesh's shoulder, and sure enough, the first words out of his mouth were, look, 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 I just closed my eyes for a second when you touched me. I'm totally ready to stay up for a week. No young Gilgamesh shouldn't have pitched him and informed him. You 
just slept a whole week. Look at the bread we set out, one per day. The oldest is hard and moldy, while the newest is fresh from the oven. You have been sleeping long enough for bread to be baked and go bad. Ah, please, begged Gilgamesh. Everywhere I turn, all I see is my impending death staring at me. But it pished him, said it was no good. He'd had his chance and he'd lost it. He offered the king a bath and a change of clothes and food and rest so that when he returned to Uruk, at least he would look respectable. Gilgamesh, Gilgamesh accepted. And soon enough, he was back on the boat with the ferryman. Pishtim's wife had seen Gilgamesh preparing to leave, and she took her husband over to the next room. Sternly but quietly, she said, is, is that it? Uh, you saw him, nameless wife. He tried and failed. And you're just going to let him leave without telling him the other secret? Pishtim sighed. The other secret is too dangerous. No man could survive the attempt. And you won't even let him try. But Napishtim couldn't handle his wife's disappointment. And so just as the boat was pushing off, he called out to them, saying, There is one more thing they could try. Gilgamesh nearly fell into the waters of death from excitement as he pulled the boat back to the shore. What is the other way? Gilgamesh asked. I hesitate to even tell you, since it is a secret of the gods and dangerous to boot. Are you certain you want to hear it? I've traveled all this way. I will not rest until I find the secret of immortality, Gilgamesh affirmed. So Anupishtim told him that under the earth, at the bottom of the ocean, grew a thorn bush which, if cultivated, could grant youth. Gilgamesh did not hesitate, but immediately set out in the boat to the place back on the mainland where Anupishtim had indicated they traveled back across the water of death, and once on the continent, Urshanabi the ferryman decided that he would accompany Gilgamesh back to Uruk. Since, after all, ferrying was no longer going to work out for him, what with Gilgamesh having murdered his workers last episode. Once they reached the place they had been told about, Gilgamesh began to dig into the ground. He dug for days and dug for miles dug straight down without rest until finally reaching the bottom of the continent. Beneath him were the waters of the ocean, since everyone knows that the earth is basically a giant bowl of water on top of which all land simply floats. He then tied boulders to his legs and, holding his breath, threw himself into the ocean. Now, I'm not sure if the ancients believed that the ocean was deeper than we currently believe or shallower to make this feat more or less impressive, but either way, even with the stones speeding his descent, he would have had to have been holding his breath for quite a while. Then, finally at the bottom of the abyss, the lowest ground of all things, he dragged his boulders and searched until he finally found the thorn bush just as Itnapishtim had described his face turning blue and his lungs burning. He focused all his care towards digging the plant out without harming it. Still, he was badly scratched by the thorns, but he managed to retrieve the plant, then quickly cut the stones from his feet and allowed his natural buoyancy to carry him back to the deep hole he had dug. Gasping for air, he held the plant aloft, showed it to the ferryman. Look, he gasped. This is it. You can 
feel it. And just as the old man had said, I will carry this plant back to Uruk with me and protect it behind our high walls. In the gardens, we will carefully cultivate it, and I will force the elders of the city to try parts of it to see what's poisonous and what's healthy. And once the human testing is finished, I will eat from this plant and gain eternal life. I will call this plant the old man becomes young man plant. The fairy man was skeptical, thinking a more catchy name was in order, but Gilgamesh was excited to regain his youth, and the fairy man was pleased to be along for the ride. He had been among those encouraging Gilgamesh to resign himself to death previously, but if by becoming the king's companion he too could obtain eternal youth, then he certainly wasn't complaining. And so the two walked 20 miles that day and stopped for lunch, then another 30 miles until they stopped to camp for the night by a nice clean pond of water. The two men were close to Uruk now and wanted to wash off the dirt of their travels, so they bathed in the pond. But while they were bathing, a snake smelled the sweetness of the thorn plant, crawled up and ate it, immediately rejuvenating himself and shedding its old skin. Since this day, snakes have been immortal creatures and regularly shed their skin to regain lost youth. Gilgamesh looks at the plant just in time to see the snake eating it, and a crushing weight of failure descended on his soul. He climbed back onto the shore where he'd put the plant down for only a minute, and he wept bitterly. All that work, he said. All that work for nothing. Across the planet, I saw the west edge of the world and the east edge of the world. I crossed the waters of death and dug to the bottom of the abyss. And even if I wanted to go back and try again, the hole I dug caused a massive flood for miles and hid all the landmarks. I would never be able to pick out that particular spot. The plant is lost to me. Immortality is lost to me. There is nothing to be done now but return to Uruk. And after a day of traveling in depressed silence, the two came upon Uruk, the mightiest city of the dawn of civilization. The ramparts shone like bronze and the walls were thick and sturdy, the gates ancient beyond memory. Towering above all was the Temple Aeana, home of the goddess Ishtar, the city was three square miles and housed 80,000 people, boasting the first great monumental architecture in human history and the first artistic representations of the human face. Gilgamesh entered his city, a deep exhaustion in his soul, ascended into his massive palace, sinking into his opulent throne, and began to write the records of his journey. These tablets, the Epic of Gilgamesh, and every word of it was true. And thus ends the Epic of Gilgamesh. There are a lot of little notes to end this episode with, but if you've been listening since the beginning, take a moment and consider the sweep of his life. Born without equal in this world, Gilgamesh accomplished quite a lot for his city, but never had the satisfaction of a life partner. There are some who see homoerotic undertones in the relationship between Gilgamesh and Enkidu, and certainly they may have been there, though 
On one hand, the cultural understanding of homosexuality was very different then from what we have today, possibly a truer and healthier one in my opinion, though controversial opinion for sure. But on the other hand, we may simply be reading the cultural display of friendship in the wrong way. And what the two shared was genuine brotherly love. When he finally did gain his life partner, he finally knew joy, completeness, and purpose. It is sad that we have lost so many tales of Gilgamesh and Enkidu because they certainly did far more than I had the sources to read you over the last five episodes. And when he lost that partner, he lost so much. His joy, his courage, his purpose. For those of us in this middle phase of life, having found that partner, the idea of losing him or her is a crushing fear. And it is impossible not to sympathize when even a man who is two-thirds God and wealthy beyond compare loses the most important thing in his life. And of course, beyond the loss of others is the truly universal fear of the loss of yourself, a fear that is never truly resolved. Gilgamesh never truly accepts mortality within the narrative, as so many urge him to do. Rather, he battles against it until literally every recourse he can find fails him. He's a hero, a model for men to strive towards, and he at no point accepts death, never surrenders to it. Though at the end, as he walks heavy into his palace, he slumps as a man who has been defeated by it. The universal story then, from the dawn of time, fight mortality even if you will not win. And perhaps his attitude in earlier episodes is more right than his attitude at the end. He fights Humbaba for immortal fame, and as he walks back into Uruk for that last time, he appreciates the powerful city that will long outlast him. And sure enough, the ruins of that massive city can still be visited today, at least, I mean, theoretically, by archaeologists. I don't know about the tourism situation. And damn if his story isn't still being retold 5,000 years after his death. Seriously, there are a small handful of people who lived earlier whose names are recorded. But they're all just names and sometimes brief accounts, and even they're largely forgotten. The character of Gilgamesh, the man who he was, nine foot tall, two-thirds divine, is still remembered to this day. He beat out everyone born before him for fame, and there are plenty of people only a hundred years dead who are far more forgotten than Gilgamesh. Heck, there are people currently alive less well-remembered than the first hero. It isn't literal immortality what he gained, but it is definitely something. And we can't just leave this episode without mentioning the elephant in the room on the modern side of things. If the flood story that Utnapishtim told sounds familiar to you, that's because it should be. This is the prototypical flood myth that inspired the story of Noah's Ark in the book of Genesis. Humorously, this tablet was only found in 1870 by archaeologists attempting to find proof of the histories in the Old Testament. And when they translated the flood myth, it became a minor theological scandal, with some claiming that it had proved the book of Genesis was just as mythical as the lost gods of Mesopotamia. And some people still hold that position, though... Other Christian and Jewish theologians will explain to you that this is just a separate culture, remembering the same completely factual events. 
Either case, true or not, the fact that Utnapishtim appears in so many guises in so many cultures is an interesting phenomenon to note. And indeed, if you believe him to be a real person, then he would manage to outstrip Gilgamesh in his own story for the most famous ancient person, since surely the biblical tale of Noah is even more widespread than the king of Uruk. In any case, this concludes both the Epic of Gilgamesh and the Sumerian royal cycle, but there are still plenty more tales from the dawn of civilization to tell you. I don't feel like jumping right into another heavy work like, say, the Enuma Elish, though I promise to get to that soon enough. But still, join me next time as we jump from god-kings to simple gods and look at some of the miscellaneous tales of Ishtar, goddess of love and war, including some of the infidelities that Gilgamesh threw in her face last episode to such dramatic consequences. Thank you for listening.